This week on the SSPX podcast, we'll be sharing the parish mission from St. Vincent de Paul's in Kansas City as it was delivered in 2004. Today, Monday, we'll be hearing from Father Kenneth Dean on the topic of liberalism and indifference, seen through the lens of two figures from the Passion of Our Lord, Pontius Pilate and Herod. If you would like to hear more parish missions, reflections, conferences, as well as our Crisis in the Church series and Questions with Father series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And next week, we'll have another series of meditations on the Passion of Our Lord for Holy Week. Now, we'll turn to the Monday evening mission from Father Dean. Welcome to St. Vincent's Parish Mission 2004. During this week, we will be speaking about the different characters who played a role in the drama of our Lord's Passion. Each evening, we will present one or two persons involved in the Passion of Christ. Tonight, I'd like to speak about two men who are of particular interest for us in the modern world, Pontius Pilate and Herod. I thought that perhaps I should give you a little background information, just as a a reminder of the situation which led up to the meeting of Christ with Pilate. Remember that the chief priests of the Jews had apprehended Jesus and sought to put him to death through envy. They had brought false witnesses forward to testify against Jesus in a kind of mock and illegal trial. They found him guilty on the charge of blasphemy when Christ truthfully answered the question of the high priest who asked him under oath if he was the Christ, the Son of God. But the Jews could not put anyone to death without the consent of the Roman governor, since at that time the Romans had conquered Judea and they were the ruling power. The chief priests of the Jews, therefore, had reluctantly to bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, to try to convince him that this man was worthy of death. Just a little background now on Pontius Pilate himself. Shortly after assuming the office of governor, He had caused the Roman standards with the painted portraits of the emperors to be brought by night into Jerusalem and set up there. It required the utmost efforts and the almost desperate remonstrances on the part of the Jews to induce him to remove the objectionable images from the city. At Easter, about a year later, Less out of love for Tiberius Caesar than out of spite against the people, Pilate caused the gilded coat of arms with the name of the ruling emperor to be hung up in the former palace of Herod. The Jewish people again grew violently excited and called upon the four sons of King Herod and the Jewish nobility to remonstrate with Pilate. When the procurator in spite of their remonstrances, did not remove the coats of arms, they resolved to send a petition to Tiberius Caesar. The royal heir, Herod Antipas, personally took the petition to Rome. Tiberius Caesar manifested his displeasure and gave orders that the coats of arms be removed without delay from Jerusalem and placed in another place, in Caesarea, 
It goes without saying that this incident undermined the authority of Pilate in Judea. From this episode dated the enmity between him and Herod and Antipas. On the Feast of the Tabernacles about a year later, a riot broke out in Jerusalem when Pilate, to defray the expense of an aqueduct he had built, ordered the treasury of the temple to be opened. Some Jews from Galilee were massacred close to the altar of burnt offerings. The rioting continued before the praetorium and had a sad and bloody ending. It was no doubt during this riot that Barabbas was arrested with some other rioters and kept in custody until the next crucifixion day. In consequence of his lack of consideration and his brutality, Pilate was cordially hated by the Jews. So that gives you some impression of, of of the past history between Pilate and the Jews, which was, as you can see, very, not very good. There was a lot of tension there already from past things that have happened. And so it gives you also some indication of of Pilate when he's dealing with the Jews and with the case of Jesus, the kind of pressure that may have been on the man. Now, St. John tells us that the Jews could not enter the praetorium if they wished to eat the Passover. The praetorium was the palace of the governor, the hall where Pilate held his court. The praetorium was the place of a governor, and of course he was a Roman and he was a Gentile. So going into the place of a Gentile meant defilement for any Jew. It's a kind of ritual uncleanness they would contract if they went into such a place. There was a purification process then necessary to undergo for doing that, and that meant that one could not eat the Passover meal that day, which was the greatest The Passover was the greatest of all the feasts that the the Jews had. So therefore, they stood outside the praetorium, clamoring and expected Pilate to come out to them. And in this very first meeting of Pilate with the Jews, at least on this occasion, we see portrayed the character of Pilate. For we are told that he went out to them. You see, Pilate as we'll see, is a man of compromise and not really interested in justice. Let's speak more now about Pilate himself. Pilate is a man who is not devoted to the cause of justice because he is too selfish. He is a man capable of recognizing justice, it's true, because at least twice he told the Jews about Jesus, I discover no crime in him. He recognizes justice, but he's too self-centered, too weak of will to accomplish what is just. We see Pilate trying to avoid making a hard but a very necessary decision. That is the decision to free Jesus because he's obviously innocent. He does everything possible to avoid confronting this difficult situation and making a decision. He tries no less than five times in different ways to get out of his responsibility. You see, here we have a man in authority 
who professed, who pardoned, who has received his, his power from God and Christ himself acknowledges that, that he received his authority from God, but who seems unwilling to make necessary decisions. And why? I think we can conclude that his own self-interests are a higher motive for him than the cause of justice. He's seeking to save his job, to save his position, and perhaps even to save his own neck. Remember, because the Jews have already gone over his head at least once and going straight to Caesar, and Caesar backed them up. So Pilate is fearful, fearful for his job, fearful for himself. But what is the cost? The cost is compromising justice. Dear faithful, when it comes to our own self-will and self-interest, St. Catherine of Genoa said, Our self-will is subtle and deeply rooted within us. When we cannot do our own will in one way, we do it in another, under all kinds of pretexts. And this is what we see with Pilate. He, he wants to get out of making a decision about what to do with Jesus. Because he knows he's innocent, yet he fears standing up to the Jews who have rioted already and have gone over his head before. He fears for his job. He fears displeasing Caesar again. So if he can... Pilate will find every possible way to get out of making this decision without having to compromise justice. This is his dilemma. Well, let's take a look then at the ways in which he tries to avoid his responsibility, the ways in which he tries to get out of making this decision, if possible, without compromising justice. The first is that Pilate tells the Jews Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. It seems simple enough. I mean, this is obviously a question of the Jewish law, so let them handle it. This is the thinking of Pilate. However, the, the crafty Jews answer, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, this is not strictly true. Because the Roman government had given the Jews the right to execute without trial any person who would pass through the brass, pardon, who would pass through the, the entryway enclosing the inner court of the temple. So if anyone went through there unauthorized, even if the person was a Roman, they could be put to death by the Jews without a trial. The Jews also had the right to put to death those guilty of certain grave offenses indicated in the law of Moses, like adultery or blasphemy, and the penalty for that was being stoned to death. And we know that from the gospel because we see the woman caught in adultery, that the Jews were going to stone her until Christ intervened and, and started writing in the sand probably their sins, and uh, they left. Also, remember just yesterday, the gospel of yesterday, that the Jews, after our Lord said, I am, the Jews picked up stones. They were going to stone him right then and there. But our Lord, uh, who knew it was not yet his time, was able to disappear 
and pass through their midst. See, our Lord was, it seems, very good at playing hide-and-seek when he wanted to. And if he didn't want to be captured, he, he simply passed through the crowd or disappeared. It happened one other time when he was at the, when he riled up the people in his hometown and, and uh, they were ready to push him off the cliff and he simply passed through them. Well, if this is true that the Jews actually had the power then to put to death, why would they say we are not permitted to put anyone to death? Were they lying? Well, no, not really, but their meaning is a little more subtle. Remember, it's the feast of the Passover, and the law of Moses did not permit them to put to death anyone during the feast day. So when the Jews say, we are not permitted, they mean by that their own law does not permit them, not the Roman law. Well, you might say, well, why then didn't the Jews just wait a couple days until the feast was over? They could have kept Jesus a prisoner as they had him and put him to death later on. Well, their hatred and their envy of Jesus would not allow them to wait. Let's be honest. Plus, remember, they had him now. They had finally got a hold of him. He had disappeared on them before, and it's possible he could do it again. Well, so while they had him, they wanted to do it now, immediately. Now, they couldn't do it that day because they were forbidden by the law of Moses. But the Roman governor, he was a pagan. He wasn't under the law of Moses. He was free to put the prisoner to death today especially since there were other criminals who were already going to be crucified that very day. So the Jews wanted to jump on this opportunity. But of course, they they had to get Pilate to do it. They had to make political charges against Christ. And if they couldn't get Pilate to believe those charges, they at least had to get him to, to fear. And that's what happens. So, drumming up these political charges, the Jews claim, we found this man perverting our nation, prohibiting the payment of tribute to Caesar, and asserting that he himself is Christ the King. He stirs up the people by teaching throughout the whole of Judea, from Galilee, where he began to hear. Now, Pilate, who was foiled in his first attempt to get out of making this decision by throwing it back on the Jews, he hears the mention of Galilee and it gives him another idea. Since Jesus is a Galilean, he belongs to the jurisdiction of Herod, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem for the feast days. So let Herod judge him. This is his second idea to get out of making this difficult decision. Now, whether Herod had any real authority over Jesus, who had been apprehended in Judea, is a whole question that we're not going to get into here. Let's just suffice it to say that King Herod was not interested in judging a difficult case. He was simply interested in the person of Jesus and what he had to offer in the way of miracles. He wanted to see a spectacle. 
There was no trial before Herod. It was simply a joke. Herod did not act as a judge. He did not put his questions to ascertain the facts and on this basis to pronounce a judgment, but merely to gratify his curiosity, to amuse himself and his courtiers, and finally to make frivolous sport of the accused and to give vent to his sarcasm for him. That's what happened before Herod. There was no trial. So Herod sent him back to Pilate without judgment, as if to say, thanks, but no thanks. So Pilate once more had to deal with with Jesus. The third attempt of Pilate to avoid responsibility occurs to him in considering the Jewish feast day. Now it is a custom with you, said Pilate, that I should grant you the release of one prisoner at the Passover. Which one do you wish me to discharge for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And St. John adds that Pilate said, It is therefore your desire, is it not, that I should grant you the discharge of the king of the Jews? Now Pilate knew that Jesus had been turned over because of envy. But he thought that if he gave the people the choice between Jesus and a horrible murderer like Barabbas, they would choose Jesus. And then he wouldn't have to make his decision. St. Alphonsus says that Barabbas was a wicked wretch, a murderer, a thief, and held in abhorrence by all. And that Pilate felt certain that the people would prefer Jesus to him. By selecting from among the prisoners one who was a notorious rebel and murderer and contrasting him with Jesus, Pilate the procurator, so to speak, forced the Jews to ask for Jesus. He formally puts up both for choice, but by the very contrast seeks to influence them in favor of Jesus. One is almost tempted to give him credit for this act were it not for the fact that what he resorted to was absolutely reprehensible from the standpoint of justice. Pilate had formally declared Jesus guiltless, yet he now proposes that the populace should ask for his release, as if he were a malefactor convicted of a grievous crime, for only criminals were released on the festival day. The one thing Pilate had had not counted on was the extent of the hatred of the leading Jews towards Jesus. These men convinced the people to ask for Barabbas instead. Being astonished and at the same time indignant at seeing so great a miscreant preferred to an innocent man, Pilate said, What shall I then do with Jesus? And they all say, Let him be crucified. Pilate then said, What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, 
let him be crucified. So Pilate releases Barabbas, lets him go on society, and keeps Jesus bound. So Pilate has now seen three of his plans to avoid responsibility in this case fail. But with each failure, the stakes grow higher. And instead of simply telling the Jews that Jesus is innocent and will be released, he says, I found in him nothing deserving of death. I shall therefore chastise him and release him. Note he says not simply, I will release him, but I will chastise him and release him. But what has Jesus been guilty of that he should be chastised? If he's innocent, then justice demands release and not punishment. But once again, Pilate, Pilate is a man driven by fear and self-interest. And people will suffer when the cause of justice suffers. So Jesus is cruelly scourged in a last-ditch effort to satisfy the bloodthirsty men clamoring for his death in hopes that they will be satisfied at the sight of blood and not demand all his blood. In the process of the scourging, Jesus is greatly disfigured and and no doubt nearly killed. On top of this, the soldiers give him the crown of thorns and they mock him as a king. Allow me to quote again to you from this history of the Passion. Pilate comes out of his palace again and announces to the Jews assembled in front of it that he is about to bring Jesus before them once more. He says, Behold, I bring him forth unto you that you may know that I find no cause in him. The meaning of this is, I allow Jesus to be scourged in deference to your demands, though I held him to be guiltless. Now I wish to enter once more into negotiations with you in order that his life may be spared, for I am fully convinced of his innocence. Jesus immediately came forth from the palace bearing the crown of thorns and the purple garment. Moved to pity by the sight of the man of sorrows, the Roman procurator utters his famous Ecce Homo, Behold the man. But his expectation that the sight would move the Jews was not fulfilled. Their sinful obstinacy appears at its height at this moment when they raise the hue and cry, to the cross with him, to the cross with him. Like wild beasts excited by the sight of blood, the high priests and their followers thirst for more blood at the pitiful sight. According to St. John, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So once again, Pilate does not achieve what he wants. And what is it that he wants? That Jesus be declared innocent and released? Yes, he would like this, 
But this justice is not what he really wants. He wants at all costs to avoid trouble with the Jews and with Caesar. And he proves this by taking the last and most pathetic attempt to get out of his responsibility. The pressures of the Jews have been mounting. Now they cry, If you release this man, thou art no friend of Caesar's. Anyone setting himself up as king is opposing Caesar. Now when Pilate heard these things, he brought Jesus out and and he sat on the judgment seat. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Off with him, off with him, crucify him. What, shall I crucify your king, said Pilate? We have no king but Caesar, said the chief priests. St. Luke tells us that their outcries prevailed, and Pilate gave sentence that their demand should be granted. For he was fearing a riot. In one last pathetic attempt to avoid his responsibility, he takes water and washes his hands in the presence of all, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. Look to it yourselves. But was he really innocent of Christ's blood? Did he not spill it already in the scourging? Did he not finally give his judgment that Christ should be crucified? Perhaps there are some of you who think I'm a bit hard on Pilate. After all, our Lord said to the Jews that the Jews were guilty of the greater sin. Well, yes, hatred is greater. Hatred is worse. But but Pilate's sin is more our modern sin. It's a sin of negligence. It's a sin of trying to avoid responsibility. It's a sin of self-interest. It's a sin of not loving and seeking justice enough. And I think those things speak more to, to the modern world. Those are our modern sins. Dear faithful, look at the evils which came from Pilate's actions. He sought to release Jesus. But he sought more than that not to displease the Jews. And therefore he causes Jesus more suffering. If Pilate had been wicked... He would have agreed with the Jews right away and said, yet off with him, let's crucify him. Instead, because of his weakness and his trying to get out of responsibility, he ends up making Christ suffer more. Not only is he crucified, he's scourged, he's crowned with thorns, he's compared with Barabbas. So these are some of the evils that, because of Pilate, happened to our Lord. He subjects him to the judgment of one who is totally incapable of making an objective judgment, and that is Herod. 
And Herod simply mocks and insults him. He places the Son of God on the same level with a notorious murderer, Barabbas. This is humiliation, this is injustice. And it's treating him as if he's already guilty. And then finally, he has Jesus scourged in a most brutal manner on his back as well as on the front and the face. And he allows the crowning with thorns and the mocking, even if he didn't order it. He was still in charge. All these extra evils, then, our Lord suffered because of Pilate's unwillingness to take a stand for what was right. An unwillingness to exercise his authority for the cause of justice when he needed to. Perhaps now just a few thoughts on this point on applying maybe Pilate's actions to our own lives. We are sometimes put in a similar position as Pilate. Difficult, tough spot. We're in a tough spot sometimes between doing what is right and just or doing what would please others or cause a potential problem. And no doubt we should avoid problems if we can, but not at the cost of justice, not at the cost of re-crucifying Christ. So you may find yourself at this position at the workplace between doing what is right or doing what everybody else does, pleasing the crowd. What do we choose? Do we have the courage to stand up for Jesus? Or do we fear the human respect and give in to the clamoring of others? This might apply to various things. It might apply to cutting corners at work, not doing your best simply because others do that and others ask you to do the same. It may apply to doing things with people at work after hours, going to questionable places with them because of the pressure they put on you, and many, many other cases. These are similar situations as Pilate had. Dear parents, you may find yourselves in this position at home. For example, when it comes to correcting or disciplining your children. You might ask yourself, do I do what is just and discipline them when they need it? Or do I seek not to displease them and risk losing their friendship. If our number one priority is not justice, but saving face, if it's our self-interest or our self-image that we put first, then, dear friends, we will make the same ultimate decision that Pilate did. And probably we will make people suffer along the way just as he did 
and trying to get out of making that decision. Dear friends, we must love justice. Jesus told us, Blessed are they who suffer persecution for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the reward for those who do justice, who are just? The reward is eternal life. Dear faithful, reflect, reflect on the evils we cause others by our unwillingness to make necessary decisions. Think of the evils we cause when we try to dump our responsibility off on someone else, just like Pilate tried. Does it ever help? Or does it not turn out like Pilate? that the situation just gets worse. Certainly we can learn by the mistakes of others. Now I'd like to move on to a second consideration of Pilate. I spoke so far about Pilate not really wanting to defend the cause of justice. And that's why Christ got crucified. Pilate is also a man not interested in truth. We know this from the famous dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate asked him, Thou art the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Dost thou say this of thy own knowledge, or have others told thee it about me? Am I a Jew, retorted Pilate? Thine own nation and the chief priests handed thee over to me. What hast thou done? My kingdom, said Jesus, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight so that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Thou art a king then, said Pilate to him. Thou sayest it, I am a king, replied Jesus. For this purpose I have been born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the, is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Indeed, what is truth? St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, he says, truth is the identity of thought and thing. This means that when our mind corresponds with reality, we possess truth. Dear friends, there is an objective world beyond our mind, full of objective things which God created. And these things are what they are. And if our mind corresponds with them, we have truth. And if not, 
we are in error. St. Cyril of Jerusalem said, Truth is one, but the contradictions of truth are many. We all know this. There are many, many examples. You do a math problem. There's one correct answer. How many errors can there be? Infinite number. There is one God. There is one true religion. How many false religions can there be? A nearly infinite number. Pilate does not seem interested in truth. Are we? Again, Pilate is typical of so many modern people who are not truth seekers, but self-interest seekers. If the truth happens to fit in with my plan for self-fulfillment, then fine. If not, I don't want it. St. Augustine said, People hate the truth for the sake of whatever it is they love more than the truth. They love truth when it shines warmly on them, and they hate it when it rebukes them. In saying what is truth, Pilate expresses and typifies the modern liberal in whom truth becomes something subjective, something which can change. What is true today for the liberal may not be true tomorrow. This we know. Today I go to one church, tomorrow to another. My decision is not based on objective reality or teaching, but solely on my own personal impressions. This is liberalism. I'm going to quote you now from Archbishop Lefebvre, speaking about truth and error, speaking to Catholics. He wrote this back in the early 60s. He said, The man who makes his own truth lives in an illusion, in an imaginary world. He creates inside his mind, as it were, a film made up of thoughts which have only the appearance of reality. Living in, an, in the unreal and above all attempting to realize concepts which are nothing but the figments of an imaginative mind is, sad to say, the root cause of all the ills which beset humanity. Oh, that's quite a statement. Archbishop Lefebvre says, living in this imaginary world of our mind, especially trying to, you might say, realize our made-up world, is the root cause of all the ills which beset humanity. Corrupt ideas are a much graver matter than corrupt morals. For the scandal caused by morals is less extensive than that caused by errors. It is the errors which spread more rapidly and corrupt entire peoples. 
Do we understand that? Do we understand that error is, in a sense, worse than moral corruption? Error, intellectual error, is worse than moral corruption because it's more widespread. It affects more people. And it changes things more deep down. He continues, The church constantly teaches the truth, and by that very fact points out error. But alas, it has to be recognized that many, even among the faithful, either do not take the trouble to learn the truth, or else turn a deaf ear to the warnings they are given. It's a very sad truth truth itself that often even Catholics, traditional Catholics, aren't interested in learning the truth, aren't interested in learning their catechism, aren't really interested in in what their pastors warn them about. These are not my words. They're the words of Archbishop Lefebvre. He continues, The scribes and Pharisees represent those who come to the church, the mistress of truth, claiming to impose upon her their own ideas and concepts. Instead of coming with minds ever thirsting after truth and prepared to receive it and bring it to fruition. Happy are those who drink from the sources of the light and shun those who are dubious and discouraged by the church. Happy are those who are obedient to the church and who love the truth. Let me give you one additional little description of a liberal Catholic. This is taken from the book, What is Liberalism? The liberal Catholic assumes as the formal motive of the act of faith not the infallible authority of God, but his own reason, deigning to accept as true what appears rational to him according to the appreciation and measure of his own individual judgment. He subjects God's authority to the scrutiny of his reason and not his reason to God's authority. He accepts revelation not on account of the infallible revealer, but because of the infallible receiver, meaning himself. With him, the individual judgment is the rule of faith. He believes in the independence of reason. It is true he accepts the magisterium of the church, yet he does not accept it as a sole authorized expounder of divine truth. He reserves, as a coefficient factor in the determination of that truth, his own private judgment. In other words, yes, the church is infallible, but when it comes to making a practical decision, it's really up to me. I'm also infallible. They don't say that, but that's how they think. The true sense of revealed doctrine is not always certain, according to them, And human reason has something to say in the matter as to the limits of the church's infallibility. 
The liberal Catholic calls himself a Catholic because he firmly believes Catholicity to be the veritable revelation of the Son of God. He calls himself a liberal Catholic because he believes that no one can impose upon him any belief which his individual judgment does not measure as perfectly rational. What is not rational, he rejects. He is intellectually free to accept or reject. What appears good, he assents to, but he is intellectually bound to no one. Thus, he unwittingly falls an easy victim to the snare set by the devil for the intellectually proud. He has substituted the naturalistic principle of free examination for the supernatural principle of faith. As a consequence, he is not really a Christian, but a pagan. He has no real supernatural faith, but only a simple human conviction. Well, those are strong words, but they're true. If we submit to faith to ourselves, even though we claim to submit to the church, do we have the faith? Are we submitting to truth? Dear friends, we have to love the truth. Hopefully that's why we, we come to the traditional Mass, because we want a true representation of the sacrifice of Calvary and not just a vague or ambig- ambiguous one. We have to love the truth. The whole truth, no matter what the church teaches, we have to accept it all, wholeheartedly. All her moral teachings, not rationalizing them away, that's the faith. Pilate is the liberal, not interested in truth, who is not evil himself, but who allows a great deal of evil to happen. The true liberal is not guilty of malice. But since he does not seek the truth, he he naturally judges all things according to his reason and self-interest. And another question we might ask is, how can one who doesn't love truth exercise well his authority? Again, this is the case of Pilate. He told Jesus, Do you not realize that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And our Lord answers, basically, your authority indeed is from above. As if to say, you have the authority to do what is right, but you have no right to abuse your authority. Did Pilate have the choice to release Jesus or to put him to death? The answer to that is no, he didn't. He had the freedom and the authority to do what is right, to release him. But to crucify Jesus was an abuse of his free will and his authority. Did the people have the choice to choose between Jesus or Barabbas? Again, no, they didn't. They had the freedom to choose Jesus, who was innocent. 
But to choose Barabbas was an abuse of their free will. Dear friends, do we have the choice to sin? No, we don't. Because free will has been given to us to choose what is good. Free will is not given to us to choose freely between good and evil. That's an abuse of our free will. Yes, it can happen. It happens all the time. But our freedom does not consist in choosing between good and evil. It consists in choosing what is good. You may not have thought about this before, but when we get to heaven, we retain our free will. We don't lose it. You see, if you think that freedom means choosing between good and evil, then when we die, we automatically lose our free will because you can't do evil anymore. We don't lose it. In heaven, we still have our free will. We're only choosing good. That's what it was made for. Choosing evil, which is sinning, is an abuse of our free will. Well, dear friends, what gives us the ability to overcome the the temptation to evil and to choose what is good? If we love justice and truth and seek it above our self-interest. The mistakes of Pilate, they're there for us to see. Now it remains for us briefly to look at Herod. I know I don't have too much time, but Herod is an example of what happens if we continuously sin and don't care about truth or justice. Herod is indeed a hardened sinner. He's a total worldling who lives only for himself to fulfill his passions and his curiosities. I'll give you a very brief rundown of King Herod, a little bit of history behind him. Herod, commonly called Herod Antipas, was a son of Herod the Great. Since the death of his father, he held the position of Tetrarch of Galilee in Peria, but stood in bad repute among the larger portion of the Jewish people on account of his marriage, marriage with Herodias and his unjust proceeding against John the Baptist. Herod, on the present occasion, had come from his ordinary residence, Tiberius, to Jerusalem for the Paschal Feast, and he dwelt near the Praetorium in what is called the Little Herodian Palace. Bishop Sheen has some very good commentary on Herod. He says, Two episodes lay bare the soul of Herod. The first, his divorce from his wife, and his second marriage to Herodias, who was his brother's wife and also the daughter of his half-brother. The second fact which reveals him is his treatment of John the Baptist. He had invited John the Baptist into his palace not to hear the truth of his preaching, but to enjoy the thrill of his oratory. And then Bishop Sheen makes a little comment about modern society from that. He says, There are so many in the world that are this way. They do not want to be better. They only want to feel better. 
But St. John the Baptist was not the type of preacher who toned down his gospel to suit the paganism of his hearers. Because he condemned Parrot's second marriage, he lost his head. After John's decapitation, Herod heard of Jesus and thought Jesus might be John's avenging spirit come back to haunt him. Full of, stu- full of superstition, he thought it was John risen from the dead. It was to this man that Pilate, on the morning of that Good Friday, sent Jesus, as if Herod were the proper judge to decide his fate. Herod rejoiced to see Jesus, expecting that he would perform a miracle or pronounce a prophecy, especially regarding his own destiny. And thus he would furnish entertainment and amusement for his court. He had meanwhile abandoned his former murderous plan. He at one point had wanted to kill Jesus because he satisfied himself of the harmlessness of Jesus and his activity. He now questioned our Lord concerning the charges made against him, but Jesus remained silent in the presence of this lecherous, adulterous, pompous potentate, the murderer of St. John. Herod did not get an answer from Jesus. Not one word. Why? He didn't deserve it. Hadn't he already talked frequently with John the Baptist while he held him as a prisoner for that long time? It says in the Gospel, Herod used to like to talk to him. Hadn't he heard all about Jesus' miracles already? Certainly he had received many graces which he had rejected. And thus, our Lord's punishment for him is silence. The words of St. Ignatius of Antioch ring very true here. He accomplishes more by his silence than others that talk to no purpose. Bishop Sheen says, Herod, by asking our Lord many questions, not questions of doctrine and discipline as Annas had done, but questions prompted by curiosity. Therefore, to all the questions, our Lord answered him nothing. Jesus tried to save Judas and Pilate, but for Herod, not a word. Why did our Lord refuse to speak to Herod? Can it be that he who came to save all men and who loved them enough to die for them should still not even try to win a callous soul like Herod? Why should he who spoke to Judas the traitor, to Magdalene the the hair lot, and to the thief now be silent before a king? Bishop Sheen says, because the conscience of Herod was dead. He was too familiar with religion. He wanted miracles, yes, but not to surrender his will, but to satisfy his curiosity. His soul soul was already blunted by appeals 
including even those of John the Baptist, that another appeal would only have intensified his guilt. He was stone deaf on the sight of God. He was as one dead in body and soul, eaten by luxury and sin. Herod was not offering his soul for salvation, but only his nerves for titillation. Those are the words of Bishop Sheen. Normally, silence is a good thing, but not the silence of Jesus towards Herod. Jesus, think of it this way. Jesus had already been kicked out of Herod's heart, so now it only made sense that he also be kicked out of Herod's house. Herod, seeing that Jesus gave him no answer, drove him away from his house with scorn, turning him into a ridicule with all the persons of his court. In order to load him with greater contempt, he had him clothed in a white garment, so treated him like a fool, and thus sent him back to Pilate. Let us beware of the Silence of Jesus. It's true, Jesus may only be sleeping in our soul as he did in the boat, or it may be his punishment for us as it was for Herod, for our worldliness and our sins. Our conscience can tell us what may be the case. But remember, Dear friends, even the punishments of Jesus are much more preferable than the embraces of the world. For our Lord punishes out of love and to save us, while the embraces of the world are deadly, deadly for our soul. Herod presents a pretty scary picture. That of a soul not responding to grace. Well, let's pray that our Lord do anything to us so that we don't become like that. The prayer of St. Alphonsus was, My Jesus, this I have deserved because I have been deaf to thy merciful inspirations by which thou hast so often called me to thy love. I have deserved that thou shouldst speak to me no longer, and that thou shouldst abandon me. But no, my dear Redeemer, have pity on me and speak to me. Speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. Tell me what thou willest from me. I wish to obey thee and to please thee in all things. Pilate and Herod provide us with sad examples of where sin can lead us. Jesus did not speak to Herod because Herod had already shut him out. Jesus spoke to Pilate until it became clear that Pilate was not interested in truth. Then he spoke to them no more, except for one statement that he felt bound to answer.
by being faithful to grace and loving the truth and seeking it, we can be assured of the voice of Jesus speaking inaudibly in the hearts in our hearts by his grace. Well, let's pray that we have a love for the truth and for justice. And let's pray for true repentance of our sins. I'd like to close with one last thought, again from Bishop Sheen. Let's also remember our challenge to follow Christ at all costs. One of the penalties for being sincerely sincere about our religion is to be mocked and ridiculed. If our Lord submitted himself to the humor of a degenerate tetrarch, we may be sure that we, his followers, will not escape. The more divine a religion is, the more the world will ridicule you, for the spirit of the world is the enemy of Christ. Take on that robe of a fool, fellow Catholic, for a new crime is arising in the world, the crime of being a Catholic. Your Christ has worn the robe of a fool before you, but the foolish things of the world has God chosen that he might confound the wise.